Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The news was released yesterday that the U.S. Department of Justice has concluded its review of Title IX issues at Utah State University and has now entered into an agreement with Utah State University about the university's handling of sexual misconduct by students or on campus going forward. Um, we're going to talk about this, sexual assault on USU campus, sexual harassment as well, um, and we'll expand that later in the program to sexual assault, assault and uh, uh, in the wider community. Uh, so I want to quote here from the Salt Lake Tribune at the beginning of the program. By the way, we'll be talking with the Uni- Utah State University President Noah Cockett, and later in the program with Jill Anderson, Executive Director of CAPSA in uh, Salt Le- in, in uh, Logan here. Uh, this article was from yesterday um, by Courtney Tanner and Jessica Miller, reporters for the Salt Lake Tribune, quoting from this uh, Tribune article, Utah State University repeatedly mishandled cases of sexual assault on campus, failing to investigate when it knew about misconduct, and as a result rendered additional students vulnerable, the Department of Justice said on Wednesday in a report concluding a three-year investigation into the school Documents which were released by USU include heavy redactions, but show the Northern Utah University has agreed to a legal settlement with the federal agency, pledging to improve its response in the future. Continuing to quote, the DOJ wrote in its findings that previously, quote, severe sexual harassment, including rapes and other forcible sexual assaults, went unaddressed, and students who were subjected to sexual harassment often suffered negative academic, mental health, and social consequences, including withdrawal from their classes or from university altogether, end quote. Uh, Quoting again from the Tribune, the uh, university received 240 reports of sexual harassment over nearly five years, beginning in 2013, but it processed fewer than 25 in accordance with its Title IX procedures. Title IX is the federal law that charges universities with ensuring students receive education without sex-based discrimination. The OGA noted it uncovered, quote, significant failures, end quote, how the university responded to complaints. Uh, so we uh, will get wider community uh, response to these issues, but uh, now we want to address specific issues at Utah State University uh, with USU President Noel Cockett. Uh, Noel Cockett, as you'll hear in this interview, I note, uh, was provost during, uh, I think, much of the time uh, during this review. She became USU president in the, uh, late 2016, and this review period ended in, uh, in 2017. Um, we uh, reached uh, President Cockett uh, just earlier this morning, concluded our interview about uh, five minutes ago. Um, and uh, so uh, early in the interview, you'll hear me reference a uh, statement to the uh, USU campus community by uh, President Cockett. So here's my interview from just uh, moments ago with uh, USU President Noah Cockett. I'll just uh, read from uh, your statement to the campus-wide community. Uh, Of course, we're talking about the Title IX Compliance Review from the Department of Justice and a new agreement now with USU and Department of Justice And uh, you say the review found university-wide failures in USU's processes to prevent and respond to instances of sexual misconduct. The period was, uh, I think, 2013 to early 2017. Uh, so there are high-profile, you know, rape cases that made the news. There's, uh, you know, the, 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 the problems of the Department of Music. But uh, you're talking here about uh, university-wide failures. What, uh, what uh, maybe you could outline what, what some of those failures were. Um. Yes, it was a period of time uh, with some high-profile cases that were um, 
discussed in the media, that caused us to really deep dive into how we were doing our processes, what policies we had, um, how our training was going. And if I had to use one word, I would say that what we found was uh, we were not coordinated across the campus. Uh, People certainly cared and still care, of course, about sexual assault and prevention um, and education in that area. And so there were a lot of efforts that had not been coordinated. I think uh, another thing that we found is that there were certain groups very uh, focused on this, but we hadn't brought it to a university level where everyone's committed, everyone's talking about it, everyone's working towards uh, prevention of sexual assault. And so I would say, again, lack of coordination across the university. Certainly there was a commitment to prevention and education in the area of sexual assault, uh, but it needed more uplifting at a university-wide level. Uh, so uh, there was an internal review, 2016, right, and then some changes yeah. uh, implemented. Uh, maybe talk about some changes already implemented, and then what changes are, are now agreed to in this agreement. Uh, we actually uh, began, based on our internal review, even uh, in fall 2013, we had begun to make significant changes. Um And uh, one of those was in fall of 2016, we implemented the consent uh, campaign. And this was to get people, uh, especially our students, talking about what uh, responsibilities everyone has uh, if they choose to move into uh, some type of sexual relationship. We also conducted a climate survey in spring of 2017. We had a broad participation by our students, probably about 4,500, very good sampling. And this helped us frame what our students did and did not know about reporting uh, problems they were having with policies, uh, where they did and did not know about resources. And that then also became a major driver of our efforts through 2017-2018. The upstanding uh, um, campaign, which talks about what bystanders can do, really focus on where you go to get resources, how you report, both uh, confidentially and uh, more formally to the Title IX office, and then a Start by Believing campaign as well. We took a second climate survey in spring of 2019, and clearly our campus was uh, responding to these uh, very directed uh, conversations, education programs, etc. And from that spring survey, again with about 4,500 students, uh, we were able to pinpoint a few more areas that we needed to work on, uh, which the DOJ agreement also outlines uh, additional ways that we can make our 
campus even safer. But the the campus climate survey did indicate that 99% of our students did not have concern about safety on campus. And uh, so it was reaffirmation that uh, our campus was responding, our campus was engaged, our whole university uh, was making progress in giving uh, students tools and uh, and support in uh, really promoting healthy relationships. Of course, uh, probably what's needed, you probably if you would agree that this, what's needed is a whole culture change, right? Uh, oh, you, absolutely, you... a culture change. That was absolutely right. A focus, uh, a community uh, engagement on this. Do you do you feel like it? It sounds like you feel like there's been some progress made. What what progress still needs to be made? Do you think the DOJ agreement outlines a few areas of training that they would uh, would like us to do? Uh, we had been doing uh, mandatory online training for our incoming students, and we had implemented that about three years ago. And they have asked that that training be face-to-face. They would also like us to do annual training of all students where we implement an online uh, modules to make sure, again, that our entire student body is aware of and contributing to prevention of sexual assault. Another area that they have asked us to um, Uh, broaden is our staff training. We had been doing, again, since our review in 2016, we implemented an onboarding training of all new employees of their requirements and uh, what they can do to help us. Uh, And we were doing every third year of training for staff. The DOJ agreement uh, outlines a uh, requirement to do that staff training annually. So a step up in the frequency of the training that we're providing to students and to our staff. This I know this must hit you hard. I know it has hit you hard. You, you weren't president uh, during most of the period of this review, but uh, in your statement, uh, you say we should have done better, I should have done better. What, uh, what's your, what are your personal feelings? Uh, Again, in my roles of leadership, uh, we have um, many things that we do. And as I reflect back and I think about that period of 2013-2016, I wish that I had paid more attention to what was happening at the national scene on sexual assault Uh, on campuses, that would have prompted me to do an earlier examination of what we were doing at USU, to starting those conversations even earlier than 2016. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I am so grateful that the university has supported us our student body, our individual students have helped us 
move us to uh, where we are now. Uh, what I would have liked was to have started those efforts even as early as 2013. Um, so that period of time, again, without deep uh, reflection about us as a university and our campus safety, uh, I I wish that it had started earlier. Mm. We got a question by email. This is from uh, Madison uh, for you. Uh, she says, President Cockett has stated the Department of Justice report mirrors the previous internal review of sexual misconduct at USU. Madison says, yet the OJ report explicitly implicates the provost's office as having mishandled what should have been an immediate response to investigation and allegations from victims, and notes that uh, you, uh, President Cockett, were provost at the time, and uh, wonders what your response to that. That's correct. The Title IX office was um, under my uh, office. And so the director of the, uh, um, it was called AAEO office at that time, reported to me. I met frequently with the director. Uh, We had regular meetings. Uh, But again, uh, the impression was that we had a safe campus. People were um, not reporting, um, and uh, the policies weren't as strong as they needed to be, so there was a feeling that things were fine. It was the media uh, coverage, that exposure of two very high-profile sexual assault cases that made me realize those things are happening here at Utah State University. This is not something that you read in national news. This is happening right here in my university. And that caused me to deep dive, uh, really reflect on where we were, do an honest, uh, truly honest assessment of where our failings were and the uh, absolute need to improve. I assume you're, you know, I know your goal is a safe campus. What, wh- how will we know? Um, is it a safe campus now, do you think? What, uh, what, what's the benchmark? What, what do you look at? The benchmark would be how our students are feeling about uh, the, um, the climate of our campus. Again, I refer back to the campus climate survey in 2019. We'll continue to do that on a regular basis. It's been very helpful to us to pinpoint, uh, you know, uh, pockets of where there's more need for training, conversation, uh, policies, etc. So continuing to rely on our campus surveys. Uh, actually, the number of reports will go up as there is more and more communication about this. And that is because we're educating and assisting people in knowing where to make reports. They're feeling more comfortable about, uh, you know, bringing those, uh, those problems forward. And that then allows us to, again, do even more education and uh, uh, support measures that are needed by those that experience sexual assault. Um, I would like to say we can move the dial to uh, zero incidents. I would be 
uh, I would have to be realistic and say that that is a desirable goal, but is likely not to uh, happen. Uh, our student population and staff do turn over. Uh, we do have people come and go, and uh, so that's why we need to continue with our education prevention programs and make sure that people know we are there uh, with the support. Uh, finally, President, what, uh, you know, if someone, uh, heaven forbid, has uh, experienced uh, sexual harassment, sexual assault on, on campus, where, where do they turn? What's, what should they do? They uh, should absolutely go to the Title IX office. Uh, several people are there ready, willing to uh, describe the support services that we have here on campus. They will also speak to them about a formal investigation, uh, but that is the choice of the victim. Um, we certainly understand if at that moment in time they would prefer not to do that. Again, our, our primary uh, goal is to provide those support services that a victim of sexual assault desires. Uh, so we really stress that the victim is able to chart the next steps of what happens. So Title IX, uh, we have uh, an anonymous reporting option. Uh, they can go begin the process through that. Uh, so strongly, strongly want to voice that. We want to provide the, that support and that help to victims of sexual assault. President Cockett, uh, thank you so much for taking some time this morning. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Bye, Tom. Thanks, and bye now. That's uh, my interview from uh, just about a half an hour ago with uh, Utah State University President Noel Cockett. Um, and uh, responding, responding to the program today to the report from yesterday that USU has uh, signed an agreement with U.S. Department of Justice that concludes Department of Justice's Title IX compliance review of USU's policies and procedures for responding to reports of sexual misconduct. Uh, the period there was 2013 to 2017. The review found the university-wide failures in USU's processes to prevent and respond to instances of sexual misconduct. Um, and uh, so we're getting the response there from uh, President Cockett. Uh, we'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll expand the focus uh, to the community. And we'll bring in Jill Anderson, Executive Director of CAPSA in Logan. Love to get your response. We had Madison's response on with the president, her re, uh, question to the president. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. We'll have more following this.
Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams. We're responding to the reports that came out yesterday. Uh, the conclusion of a review by the U.S. Department of Justice of USU's uh, policies and procedures for responding to reports of sexual misconduct involving students. Uh, their Title IX compliance. And the Department of Justice has uh, concluded that review. Um, uh, pr- pretty uh, pretty uh, firm and harsh findings uh, of USU's uh, failures over the years, at least uh, 2013 to 2017. And we heard from President Cockett that the university is, uh, feels like they've made some progress, determined to make uh, more progress uh, going forward. We'd love to get your feelings on this and uh, your feelings, maybe experiences and uh, views on sexual assault, sexual harassment uh, community-wide. That's uh, where we'll turn our focus next. You can uh, join us by email to upraxcess at uh, gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com, or you can call us 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. We bring in now Jill Anderson, who is Executive Director of uh, CAPSA in Logan. Uh, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thanks good, for having me on. Good morning. Um, I should note that uh, I was doing a little research uh, on you prior to having you on. Uh, you were named by Herald Journal's Resident of the Year for 2013. So congratulations <laughs> on that. That's a while now, but that's <laughs> recognition of, of some of your uh, service in the community. Uh, so Thank for, you. Uh, first of all, um, uh, remind us what uh, what CAPSA is, what, what you do. Yeah, CAPSA is Cache Valley's local community-based domestic violence and rape recovery center. We've been in the Valley for a little over 40 years. We originally started in 1976 as what was then known as the Cache Valley Rape Crisis Team and have just expanded services and programs for both victims of domestic violence as well as rape victims over the years. Yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about some of the services. Uh, I want to talk about some of the statistics. Um, uh, maybe start with uh, young women, uh, college-age women, because the story has to do with USU uh, students. Um, and it's um, all these statistics are just appalling, I think is the word. Um, it between the ages of 18 and 24, uh, compared to all women, uh, women that age are three times uh, more likely to be uh, to experience sexual sexual violence. Uh, I wonder what your um, uh, CAPSA, I think, doesn't usually handle cases, although people could go to CAPSA, I suppose, from campus. But uh, what are your feelings generally on this uh, DOJ report? Yeah, um, it, that age group is a particularly um, group that is at risk of rape and sexual assault. And so it's, we do serve uh, many students from campus, um, including faculty. You know, USU is a, just a part of the larger community, and um, it's really important that we collaborate and work closely together with USU. So, um, you know, we've been a part of um, committees and things that USU has put together in response to this. And we're, um, you know, having me personally, having worked in this field for a little over 25 years now, um, have been really um, enheartened and, and just grateful that the university has taken this seriously and made tremendous strides over the last couple of years to improve their response and systems. And they've just done an incredible job, and we're grateful to them for that. And I know um, that they have plans to continue improvement, and and we're happy to be um, a part of those conversations as a community-based service provider. Um, It's 
survivors need a, a confidential place they can go to to um, share what's happened to them and just discuss what options and resources are available before they might trigger a response um, from Title IX or from law enforcement that they may not be ready for. And so that's kind of the role that we play in the community is is that confidential community-based service that they can come to and just say this is what's happened and start to heal and recover from the trauma. Well, uh, uh, let's pause. We'll pause uh, periodically through the conversation here, but uh, how can people contact you? Our crisis line is 753-2500, and it's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. We have trained advocates that are experts in taking your call and, and helping you decide what next steps to take. Uh, we had a uh, uh, someone who uh, Abraham who uh, uh, called in didn't want to go on the air with us, but he says he was uh, surprised that I didn't follow up when President Cockett said she oversaw the Title IX office, uh, but she found out about the rape cases through the media. He said he found that somewhat uh, confusing, somewhat contradictory. So, apologies, Abraham, for not uh, following up with, with that. Um, I, I decided at that point to let uh, President Cockett, uh, I guess, say her piece at that point, but. Uh, so apologies for not following up. Uh, you can uh, you can respond here by calling 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We are talking about the uh, DOJ agreement and re- uh, conclusion of its review of uh, Title IX failures at uh, USU. And we're now expanding the conversation to the broader community. Jill Anderson, Executive Director of uh, CAPSA in Logan is is with us. Um, so, uh, give us some of the statistics. It's um, it, and and do Utah and Logan statistics uh, differ significantly from national statistics? They do. Uh, unfortunately, Utah has one of the highest rates of rape and sexual assault in the nation. Um, we've it's an area that we've exceeded the national average for many many years. Um, it's something that I know we're working on um, statewide. The rape recovery centers across the state are working on trying to reduce this and focusing on prevention and those kinds of things. You know, here in Cache Valley, um, CAPSA actively serves around 500 rape victims a year. Um, 100 of those are new each year, and of course, um, recovering from that trauma can take a couple of years, but we pr- provide services all the way from um, crisis intervention where we'll support them through rape exams at the Cache Valley Hospital, um, all the way through trauma recovery treatment services. And um, we're just committed to continuing to do that as well as work on preventing this from happening in the future. Um, so I want, to, I want to get into prevention, but we'll talk about reporting uh, first. Uh, understand that, uh, you know, it's a somewhat small percentage of uh, uh, people who experience sexual violence report that. I don't know what that stat is. It's about one in ten um, will actually report that, and I think we've we're seeing that change um, over the last few years. Um, there's been the Me Too movement. Um, we've started a campaign called Start by Believing. Um, where we encourage um, bystanders, uh, friends and family supporters, as well as criminal justice system response to start by believing. 
and um, just indicate to that individual that they believe them, they're here for them, and, and how can I help um, can make a big difference in whether someone decides to report or not. So uh, afraid it won't be believed, um, are, there, are there other reasons why people don't report? They're afraid they won't be believed. Um, they're afraid of, you know, being shamed, um, you know, lots of issues um, around that. Oftentimes it's somebody they know that can be confusing, someone that they loved and cared about that can also be confusing. And so, you know, that, that's why it's important that uh, community has a community-based um, confidential advocate program like CAPSA that can help them process through all of those concerns and questions, um, and then also encourages that trauma recovery so that they could um, report and go through a system, a criminal justice system, if they're ready to do that. I've heard that number before, one in 10. Uh, it seems like a while back. Has that changed? Is that improving? You know, I haven't seen any research in that improving, but just um, observation locally, I think that that is improving. Mm. What do you think the factors are there? What 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 is helping uh, people to, to come forward? Well, I think imp- improvement, just awareness of, of systems overall and community being willing to, to start by believing and being willing to say, um, you know what, we need to take a look at our system and response and processes and improve those and getting the message out that we do believe you, we do care about you, and um, we want to respond the best way possible. Hmm. Do you think, um, this is asking about a, a very broad cultural phenomenon, but I, I don't know if you've seen any change in climate in, with, with the Me Too movement. We saw a definite increase in the number of people coming forward, and again, I think that um, speaks to uh, the society as a whole saying we're, this isn't something we want to keep underground, that we want to keep quiet. We we need to bring attention to this problem um, publicly, and we need to talk about it, and we need to address it. Uh, so, I want to turn to prevention. Um, what needs to what needs to change to uh, to prevent? Uh, you know, the goal would be zero, but probably not going to get there tomorrow. What? Uh, how can we move the needle? How can we prevent? Yeah, we um, have a prevention program that works primarily in the middle schools and high schools. We have um, partnered with Utah State University and the Department of Health to bring upstanding to the high school age students, which is a similar, it's the same um, actually prevention message that USU distributes um, to its students. And our hope and goal is that they'll receive this message all the way through high school up into college. But it's a bystander intervention program that um, teaches folks how to safely stand up and intervene when they see something that's inappropriate. Um, and I think that's one way that, that we can start to prevent this is that peer-to-peer, those things aren't okay, and we're going to stand up and, and intervene in those cases. And uh, starting in middle school? Starting in middle school, yep. And we do a lot of um, healthy relationships, a lot of boundaries, a lot of confidence building, um, just those, you know, social skills that, that will help protect this from happening. Those trainings for boys and girls? Yes. And I get that. Therein lies a question. Uh, the solutions, I assume, going to be 
it's not all on women, right? Yes, you need to train men. Yeah, I mean, everybody can be an upstander. Everybody can stand up, and and when they see something inappropriate or see something dangerous, um, they can safely stand up and intervene, and we teach those skills and techniques with this um, class. Both men and women can do that. Um, And that positive peer pressure um, for those who are who are inclined to commit these crimes, um, if they have positive peer pressure around them, um, they tend to learn from that and know that these kinds of behaviors are not okay. Um, I want to get into uh, treatment and maybe talk about some vulnerable populations. Let's take a break uh, before we do that. Uh, we're talking with uh, Jill Anderson. She is executive director of CAPSA in uh, Logan. We're talking about uh, sexual violence uh, in our community. Early in the program, we were talking about sexual assault on campus and uh, the new agreement uh, with DOJ and uh, USU and uh, concluding their DOJ's uh, Title IX review of, uh, of USU. Uh, your uh, comments and questions are welcome. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. You can call us 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about sexual uh, violence in our communities. Um, early in the program, responding to the uh, new DOJ-USU uh, agreement and conclusion of the DOJ's uh, review of uh, USU's Title IX failures, uh, at least for the years 2013 to 2017. Uh, you can uh, join this program. We'd love to uh, to have you uh, join with your uh, experience, your question, your comment. Uh, 800-826-1495 is the toll-free number, 800-826-1495. Or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. Uh, so Jill Anderson, um, we're talking with Jill Anderson, Executive Director of CAPSA. Um, talk about uh, treatment uh, now. So uh, talk about when, when somebody comes uh, comes in, what, what happens? Yeah, so um, we will assess their situation, um, kind of do some safety planning to make sure that um, they'll be safe over the next few days and coming months. Um, and then uh, we just start helping them process through 
the the trauma that they've experienced um, and begin that process of healing. Um, it's really important that they understand that uh, what they're telling us remains confidential and remains with us. It's also important for them um, to understand that they are now in control in a situation like this. They've had all of their control taken from them, and we want to um, restore that back to them, which helps with their healing. Mm. Yeah, that would be an important factor. Um, so, uh, and then... Uh, and then one that I'd imagine it takes a lot of a lot of help to to heal. It it does, and especially if they're if they're going through the criminal justice system, for example, a case might last for several years, and each step along the way can be um, challenging and triggering. And just to know that they have an advocate and a support system, um, and not just an advocate, but a therapist as well that can help support them through each step of the way. Um, if they choose not to report, we can still help them regain um, control and and just a way to move forward and be um, healthy in the future. What percentage uh, consent to go to law enforcement? I imagine it's not it's not one hundred percent of the of the women. No, it's not 100%. Closer to about 25% of the individuals that we serve end up reporting and going to law enforcement. What are the barriers there? Again, there's lots of dynamics in individuals' lives. Um, Everybody has, you know, different resilience, different um, strengths, and different barriers. There could be um, things like... um, Maybe they're undocumented and don't want to risk um, those kinds of things. Maybe they're, um, it impacts the entire family. It might be a familial relationship um, where the perpetrator and the victim are um, family. Um, there's just so many dynamics and different things in individuals' lives, and that's the role that we take is to help them process through all of that and decide what path forward is best for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and long-term care, could people come back? People can come back. Um, we've had individuals, we'll serve individuals who maybe experienced it 20 years ago, um, thought they could just move on and are still having impact from that, and so we'll bring them in and help them um, work through it. And any, we're here, you know, if, they, if something triggers and they need to come back for service, we're here for that. What uh, maybe talk to me about some vulnerable uh, populations? Uh, you mentioned, I think, uh, immigrant population be one. What are some other vulnerable, yeah. especially vulnerable? Well, young age. Um, again, we talked about that. Um, high school through college age students are often at risk. Um, we also serve people with individuals, or I'm sorry, with disabilities. Um, individuals with disabilities experience. Um, rape and sexual assault at a higher rate than the general population. And so um, we've partnered with organizations like Options for Independence to ensure that they get the support they need. Um, I, I uh, did a tour of CAPS a little while ago, and that I was I was surprised, but maybe we can bring some of these things forward. Uh, there are programs to serve rural populations, and there are special considerations for victims of abuse in, in rural areas. 
Yes, um, there we do have an advocate um, and a therapist that specialize in those services in rural communities. Um, you have generations of individuals that are are tied to the land, are tied um, to the community, and so it doesn't just impact your immediate um, relations or immediate connections. It can impact the entire community because everyone knows each other, they support each other, and have often um, have these generations of connections. And so navigating through all of that um, takes some unique skill and unique perspective to be able to help a survivor navigate all of those issues. And we have assigned an advocate as well as a therapist that specialize in that area. Maybe we pause again and uh, have you give contact information if somebody listening has has experienced uh, sexual violence and and needs help, how how do they contact you? Um, 435-753-2500. All right, 435-753-2500. That's CAPSA in uh, in Logan. Um, uh, I I also noticed uh, from, uh, from taking a tour of CAPSA, and by the way, I think that's, probably available to people if they want to know no services um human trafficking you you have uh, at least one person helping deal with that we we do um we have an advocate that specializes in human trafficking um uh, we see that a lot in domestic violence cases um, they present as domestic violence victims, and then as we begin to um, work with them and assess their situation, we're recognizing that they are being trafficked also by their abuser. Um, we have a partnership with the Refugee and Immigration Center in Salt Lake, and if they have a human trafficking victims that they have rescued that need a safe place, we serve as the Northern Region um, Aftercare Center for those victims as well. Uh, I want to pause just to get a, if you're willing to get a kind of a personal reaction from this. I don't know. I'm I'm not in this world. Um, (laughs) You and others who work with this, you know, very satisfying to do this work, but uh, do you sometimes feel just a finger in the dike kind of a thing? (laughs) That's a great question. Um, Sometimes it does feel like that. Um, you know, I often have people ask me, how, how can you do this work? It must be really challenging. And while we do see sometimes the worst of what is happening in our community, we also get the honor to see um, the very best from, you know, community donors and supporters that help us continue this work. But also in the just the healing and amazing um, trajectory that, that happens in these individuals' lives. Uh, I could share story after story with you about just the, the hope that rises up um, in these victims and what they're able to accomplish and go on. We see them go on and be leaders in the community. And that's um, just extremely satisfying to see that. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that must be very helpful, you know, resilience in that, in that form. Uh, do, you, do you have anybody in mind you could tell a story in brief? Yeah. Um, you know, we had an individual come in um who was in an extremely dangerous situation. Um, the, the sheriff officer that responded said, you need to leave now and go to CAPSA or you will be killed. And um, she was able to come in, and we helped her through a number of different programs, our, um, coming into our emergency shelter and then into our housing programs and through our treatment. And 
she ended up, we even have access to scholarships to help with education, and she ended up getting her um, bachelor's in nursing degree and um, working at a local hospital and just doing wonderful, and her um, children are doing great, and, you know, those, those are the kind of stories that keep us going. Mm, yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about services for children. Uh, children are often impacted. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think about our shelter, the vast majority of individuals in our shelter are children, um, and they also experience sexual abuse, um, which we help support them through that as well. Um, and so, you know, children in abusive relationships or abusive homes are six times more likely to either become perpetrators or victims themselves in adulthood. And so one of our focus areas is um, working with those children, um, ensuring that they have therapy and supports and are learning life skills so that um, the, the cycle is not repeated in the next generation. No, uh, it's a smaller uh, number, but uh, men are impacted by abuse. They are. Um, we're one of few shelters in Utah that shelter men. Um, we do provide that. Uh, overall, um, about 25% of our clientele are men. Uh, they often don't come forward. Um, again, shame seems to be um, particularly uh, relevant in, with men, um, that they just don't come forward and ask for help. So we do encourage them that we're here and available and ready um, to support them as well. And uh, members of the LGBTQ community are vulnerable. Absolutely. Um, we also work closely with Cash Pride Center and some of the other um, LGBTQ organizations in the community to ensure um, that they're also receiving the services. Oftentimes, um, those at-risk groups are isolated and aren't aware of and can't access services the way other folks do. And so, um, for example, we send a therapist to the Cash Pride Center to serve folks there where they feel safe and comfortable. What, um, what do you wish you could do in a, in a perfect world? That'll be, have you answered that? And then that's angling toward how can people help, CAPSA. In the perfect world. So our vision is to end domestic and sexual violence in the community. And uh, I often have people say that seems like a lofty vision, um, but I, I express that if that's not what we're working to, then, then what's the point? And so we just continue to um, do the work we do, um, expand services to meet the need, um, and ensure that at least in those individuals that are coming forward for help, that, that there's no more violence in their lives. Mm. Yeah, that that's uh, that is and should be the goal, right? Uh, so, how can people help? Um, so, we have a number of events throughout the year that they can attend. We have a trivia event coming up on March thirteenth. That's a really fun event at the Riverwoods. Uh, we still have a few um, tables open, and would love to have people attend that way. Um, we also are continually looking for volunteers. We operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and we couldn't do it without um, the trained volunteers that we have. Um, and then, of course, just donating um, to help us um, continue to provide the services is all helpful. And again, that 24-hour uh, support phone line, 435-753-2500, right? Correct, yes. Uh, Jill Anderson, Executive Director of CAPSA in Logan, has been our guest in this part of the program. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
early in the program, USU President Noel Cockett, and uh, thanks for your uh, contributions to the program as well. Uh, we're going to go to a bread and butter segment. Thanks for listening today. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. Haggis. You've heard of it, though if you're like me, that's about as far as it goes. Previously, I had a faint awareness of this side dish common in Scotland. As I learned more about ancestors hailing from the old country, my curiosity grew. However, upon catching snippets about heart and liver stuffed into sheep's stomach, that curiosity waned. Still, during a recent trip to Edinburgh and the Highlands in Scotland, I determined to give haggis a go. I even consulted with native Scots to get the lowdown on the ancient recipe. Here's what Stephen, our excellent tour bus guide, had to say. Haggis is our national dish. Now, normally you would have haggis with, mixed with potatoes and turnip. We call it haggis tatties and neat. The taste of haggis itself, first of all, it's oatmeal. Most of it is oatmeal. It comes from many centuries ago. Um, people didn't want to waste any part of the animal. So traditionally you would um, mix things that we traditionally would describe as awful. Um, so the heart, the lungs, the liver, things that we might throw away, they would cut that up and cook it with the haggis, which I know doesn't sound on first hearing particularly tasty. Upon arriving in Edinburgh, opportunities to try the national dish were plentiful, with a full Scottish breakfast headlining the menu at our hotel. While my husband ordered it without reservation, I needed a practice run, opting for the vegetarian haggis and wondering what in the world would show up on my plate. We both learned a full Scottish breakfast is a close cousin to a full English breakfast of back bacon, eggs, grilled tomatoes, fried mushrooms, and bangers, or sausages. Oh, and black pudding, though that could be a discussion for another day. The Scottish version simply adds a round or dollop of haggis for good measure. My vegetarian haggis proved innocuous, even mostly agreeable, as if rough-cut oatmeal met up with a bag of mixed vegetables for a pre-dawn tango in the blender. Though compared to its omnivorous counterpart on my husband's plate, the vegetarian haggis appeared pale and soggy, like it just docked ashore after a stormy crossing on one of the many lochs or lakes nearby. Not sure I could stomach an entire serving of traditional haggis, I reached across the table to lift a forkful of my husband's breakfast. The color was more robust, reddish-brown with bits of oatmeal and onion. The appearance, somewhat like cooked rice, if you mixed it with a bottle of hearty barbecue sauce. I took a bite. So actually when most people taste haggis, if they've not been put off by the description, and you shouldn't be, you will get a kind of spicy taste to it. But not in a hot spice, not in a curry kind of spicy. But most people will say, and that's kind of surprising to them, so it's kind of spicy. And the texture, um, if you've had porridge, maybe a little like that, kind of a rough texture. Because it's mostly oats you're eating. Stephen is right. When I tasted haggis, the first thought that crossed my mind was savory mush. Though there's quickly more to it. While I did not expect the soft and crumbly consistency, the meld of onion, oats, spices, and meat quickly filled in with a deep, earthy, and nutty richness. Since it's ground, you don't remain focused on the organ component. Though, like a usual American, I thought about it just enough to be content with a single bite. It's funny 
How we wince at unfamiliar foods while we devour hot dogs between innings at the baseball stadium and pass bags of chicken nuggets to our toddlers in the back seat of the car. In fact, learning about the National Dish of Scotland made me wonder what comes to mind when they think of food in the United States. Well, huge portions <laughs> is the first thing I think of. Never order a starter. He's got a point. Who needs an appetizer when meals at American restaurants seem portioned to last a week? Stephen also specifically mentioned New York strip steak and great seafood in California and other coastal states he's visited. But he remained flummoxed by the sheer volume. Enormous portions. Why do you need to serve so much? (laughs) (laughs) Not that I was complaining. I did eat all. This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. This week in This American Life, growing up black in Russia, Elena always dreamed about who she might marry if she came to America. One day, da-da-da-da, he'll be tall and black, da-da-da-da. <laughs> Whose song was that? Uh, one day your, your prince will come. And then one day, she visits America. That's this week. Tune in for This American Life, Saturday morning at 11, here on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and UPR.org.